Chapter 18 of Quit Your Worrying by George Wharton James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Worry about manners and speech. Many people are desperately worried about their manners. One has but to read the letters written to the Answers to Correspondence, departments of the newspapers, to see how much worry this subject of manners causes. This springs undoubtedly from a variety of causes. People brought up in the country, removing to the city, find the conditions of life very different from those to which they have been accustomed, and they are uncertain as to what city people regard as the right and proper things to do. Where one perforce must act, uncertainty is always irritating or worrying, and because of this uncertainty, many people worry even before the time comes to act. Now, if their worry would take a practical and useful turn, or perhaps I had better state it in another way, namely, that if they would spend the same time in deciding what their course of action should be, there would be an end put to the worry. We have all seen such people. They are worried lest their clothes are not all right for the occasion, lest their tie is of the wrong shade, their shoes of the correct style, and a thousand and one things that they seem to conjure up for the especial purpose of worrying over them. Who has not seen the nervousness, the worried expression on their face, the real misery of such people, caused by trifles that are so insignificant as not to be worth one-tenth the bother wasted on them? The learning of a few fundamental principles will help out wonderfully. The chief end of good manners is to oil the wheels of social converse, Hence, the first and most important principle to learn is a due and proper consideration for the rights, opinions and comfort of others. In other words, don't think of yourself so much as of the other fellow. Let your question be not, how can I secure my own pleasure and comfort, but how can I best secure his? It is a self-evident proposition that you cannot make him feel comfortable and happy if you are uncomfortable and unhappy. Hence, the first thing to do is to quit worrying and be comfortable. This desired state of mind will come as soon as you have courageously made up your mind as to what standard of manners you intend to follow. The world is made up today largely of two classes, those who have money and those who don't. Of the former class, a certain few set themselves up as the arbiters of good manners. They decide what shall be called good form, and what is not allowable. If you belong to that class, the best thing you can do is to learn to play the game their way. Study their rules of calling cards, and learn whether you leave one, two, three, or six when you are calling upon a man or a woman or both, or their oldest unmarried daughter, or the rest of the family. This is a regular game like golf or polo. You have to know the course, the tools to use, and the method of going from one goal to another. Now, I never knew any ordinarily intelligent man or woman who couldn't learn the names of the tools used in golf, the numbers of the holes, and the rules of the game. How you play the game is another matter. And so is it in good society. You can learn the rules as easy as the next one, and then it is up to you as to how you play it. You'll have to study the fashions in clothes, the fashions in handkerchiefs, and how to flirt with them, when to drink tea and where, how to lose money gracefully at bridge, 
how to gabble incessantly and not know what you are talking about how to listen intelligently and not have the remotest idea what your vis-a-vis -vis is saying to you you'll have to join steam clubs and read ten new novels a day go to every new play know all about the latest movies know all the latest ideas of social uplift study art the spiritual essence of colour the futurists and the cubists of course you'll study the peerage of england and know all about rank and precedence and indeed you'll have your hands and mind so full of things that will make such a hash of life that it will take ten specialists to straighten you out and help you to die forty years before your time hence if that is the life you intend to live throw this book into the fire it will be wasting your time to read it if you don't belong to the class of the extra rich but are all the time wishing that you did that you had their money could live as they live and as far as you can you imitate copy and follow them then again i recommend that you give this book to the nearest newsboy and let him sell it and get some good out of it you are not yet ready for it or else you have gone so far beyond me in life that you are out of my reach if on the other hand you belong to the class of workers those who have to earn their living and wish to spend their lives intelligently and usefully you can well afford to disregard after you have learned to apply the few basic principles of social converse the whims the caprices the artificial code set up by the so-called arbiters of fashion manners and good form which are not formulated for the promotion of intelligent intercourse between real manhood and womanhood but for the preservation and strengthening of the barriers of wealth and caste. Connected with this phase of the subject is a consideration of those who are worried lest in word or action they fail in gentility. They are afraid to do anything lest it should not be regarded as genteel. When they shake hands, it must be done not so much with hearty, friendly spontaneity, but with gentility and you wonder what that faint touch of fingers reached high in air means they would be mortified beyond measure if they failed to observe any of the little gentilities of life while the larger consideration of their visitors disregard of the matter would entirely escape them to such people social intercourse is a perpetual worry and bugbear they are on the watch every moment and if a visitor fails to say pardon me at the proper place or stands with his back to his hostess for a moment, or does any other of the things that natural men and women often do, they are shocked. Then it would be amusing, were it not pathetic, to see how particular they are about their speech, what they say, and how they say it. As Dr. Palmer has tersely said, we are terrorised by custom and inclined to adjust what we would say to what others have said before and he might have added it must be said in the same manner i cannot help asking why men and women should be terrorised by custom the method followed or prescribed by other men and women why be so afraid of others why so anxious to kowtow to the standards of others who are they what are they that they should demand the reverent following of the world have you anything to say have you a right to say it is it wise to say it then in the name of god of manhood of common sense 
say it directly positively assertively as is your right remembering the assurance of the declaration of independence that all men are created equal don't worry about whether you are saying it in the genteel fashion of someone else's standard make your own standard even the standards of the grammar books and dictionaries are not equal to that of a man who has something to say and says it forcefully truthfully pointedly directly dr palmer has a few words to say on this phase of the subject which are well worthy serious consideration Quote, the cure for the first of these troubles is to keep our eyes on our object instead of on our listener or ourselves and for the second to learn to rate the expressiveness of language more highly than its compeers the opposite of this the disposition to set correctness above expressiveness produces that peculiarly vulgar diction known as schoolma'am english in which for the sake of a dull accord with usage all the picturesque imaginative and forceful employment of words is sacrificed there you have it if you have something to say that really means something think of that rather than of the way of saying it your hearer or yourself thus you will lose your self-consciousness your dread your fear your worry if your thought is worth anything you can afford to laugh at some small violation of grammar or the knocking over of some finical standard or other not that i would be thought to advocate either carelessness laziness or indifference in speech quite the contrary as all who have heard me speak well know but i fully believe that thought is of greater importance than form of expression and as for grammar i believe with thomas jefferson that quote, whenever by small grammatical negligences the energy of your ideas can be condensed or a word be made to stand for a sentence i hold grammatical rigour in contempt End quote. i was present once when thomas carlyle and a technical grammarian were talking over some violation of correct speech according to the latter's standard when carlyle suddenly burst forth in effect in his rich scotch burr why mon i'd have ye ken that i'm one of the men that make the language for little puppies like ye to paw over with your little fiddlin twiddlin grammars by all means know all the grammar you can read the best of poets and prose authors to see how they have mastered the language but don't allow your life to become a burden to you and others because of your worry lest you slip a grammatical cog here and there when you know you have something worth saying and if you haven't anything worth saying please please keep your mouth shut no matter what the genteel books prescribe for nothing can justify the talk of an empty-headed fool who will insist upon talking when he and his listeners know he has nothing whatever to say so if you must worry let it be about something worth while getting hold of ideas the strength of your thought the power of your emotion the irresistible sweep of your enthusiasm the forcefulness of your indignation about wrong these are things it is worth while to set your mind upon and when you have decided what you ought to say and are absorbed with the power of its thought the need the world has for it you will care little about the exact form of your words like the flood of a mighty stream they will pour forth carrying conviction with them and to convince your hearer of some powerful truth 
is an object worthy the highest endeavour of a godlike man or woman surely a far different object than worrying as to whether the words or method of expression meet some absurd standard of what is conceived to be gentility congressman hobson of merrimac fame and ex-president roosevelt are both wonderful illustrations of the point i am endeavouring to impress upon my readers i heard hobson when in philadelphia at a public dinner given in his honour he made his first speech after his return from cuba it was evident that he had been and was much worried about what he should say and the result was everybody else was worried as he tried to say it his address was a pitiable failure mainly because he had little or nothing to say and yet tried to make a speech later he entered congress began to feel intensely upon the subjects of national defence and prohibition of the alcoholic liquor traffic a year or so ago i heard him speak on the latter of these subjects here now was an entirely different man he was possessed with a great idea he was no longer trying to find something to say but in a powerful earnest and enthusiastic way he poured forth facts figures argument and illustration that could not fail to convince an open mind and profoundly impress even the prejudiced it was the same with roosevelt when he first began to speak in public it was hard work he wrote his addresses beforehand and then read them perhaps he does now for aught i know to the contrary but i do know that now that he is full of the subjects of national honour in dealing with such cases as mexico belgium and armenia and our preparedness to sacrifice life itself rather than honour his words pour forth in a perfect niagara of strong robust manly argument protest and remonstrance which gives one food for deep thought no matter how much he may differ there are those who worry about the gentility of others i remember when charles wagner the author of the simple life was in this country we were dining at the home of a friend and one of these supersensitive finical sticklers for gentility was present wagner was speaking in his big simple primitive way of a man brought up as a peasant and more concerned about what he was thinking than whether his table manners conformed to the latest standard there was some gravy on his plate he wanted it he took a piece of bread and used it as a sop and then impaling the gravy-soaked bread on his fork he conveyed it to his mouth with gusto and relish my genteel friend commented upon it afterwards as disgusting and lost all interest in the man and his work as a consequence to my mind the criticism was that of a fool john muir the eminent poet naturalist of the mountains of california had a habit at the table of crumbing his bread that is toying with it until it crumbled to pieces in his hand he would at the same time be sending out a steady stream of the most entertaining interesting fascinating and instructive lore about birds and beasts trees and flowers glaciers and rocks that one ever listened to in his mental occupancy he knew not whether he was eating his soup with a fork or an ice-cream spoon and cared less neither did any one else with brains and an awakened mind that soared above mere conventional manners and yet i once had an eastern woman of great wealth recently acquired and of great pretensions to social manners at whose table muir had eaten inform me that she regarded him as a rude boor because forsooth 
he was unmindful of these trivial and unimportant conventions when engaged in conversation. Now, neither Wagner nor Muir would justify any advocacy on my part of neglect of true consideration, courtesy, or good manners. But where is the lack of breeding in sopping up gravy with a piece of bread, or crumbing, or eating soup with a spoon of one shape or another? These are purely arbitrary rules, laid down by people who have more time than sense, money than brains, and who, as I have elsewhere remarked, are far more anxious to preserve the barriers that society and caste have placed between mankind than in seeking an active realisation of the biblical idea of the brotherhood of man. End of chapter 18